It is time for us to begin our midday program here on the Rural Radio Network as uh, we take a look at some of the issues that we're going to be facing here in the next oh, couple hours. Scott Foster here with you, along with Susan Littlefield and Jason Jorgensen. Bob Brogan is in here also. And, uh, of course, busy time as, uh, boy, the rain just sort of keeps coming, doesn't it, Susan? It doesn't seem to ever want to quite leave us for very long. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't. You know, it's cloudy here, and it looks like we could uh, get showers any time today. And tomorrow they jumped it to like 85%. Yeah, and the corn is just not growing very much, is it? No, it's not. Now we got to worry about disease and insects to top it all off. Well, good. <laughs> Way to start. We're just bright and shiny here on a Monday. What else do you have for us? Oh, I know. Well, we're going to talk ag policy coming up here at 1219 as a second round of market facilitation program payments are happening. The discussion what includes what agriculture is and with the disaster bill at that. Then coming in at 12.45, Shaley will have a feature with the Associate Professor of Agronomy at K-State discussing the large-scale project that's underway to look at high nighttime temperatures in wheat. And then at 1.17, I'll be finding out more about the H-2A program, a push that's happening in Washington, D.C. with an amendment that could be a big benefit for the dairy industry. Well, that's good news. Let's hope something comes from that. Thank you so much, Susan. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Well, 25 years ago, (laughs) an amazing moment. Jason was talking, we were talking about this off the air, the white Bronco. Yeah. I think if you were old enough at the time, if you were on this planet, you never forget that. Mm -hmm. I'd have been 19 at the time. I was outside that night playing basketball against my uh, two brothers and a cousin. And uh, our dad comes out and he says, boys, you got to come inside. And we're like... Why? I mean, we had a competitive game of two-on-two going. He says, they're chasing OJ out in California down the interstate. And we went in, and like the rest of the country, we were glued to the TV the rest of the night. But for as long as I live, I will never forget Dad coming out the back door saying, you got to come see this. I think for our age, it was sort of the the Kennedy assassination type thing we do where we were. And then they were splitting screens that night between the chase and that forgettable NBA Finals Uh. between the Rockets. And the Knicks, but uh, 25 years. Crazy. And then I remember, you know, they went through all the rigmarole of the whole trial and everything, and then watching the, you know, the verdict read, and you're scratching your head going, huh? (laughs) (laughs) That's just one man's legal opinion. Well, yeah. But it's good news. Like I said, he's on Twitter now, so everybody can hear what he's thinking yeah, maybe that will help him uh, run down the real killer now having a twitter account he's got a little extra time yeah, now, so, so uh, yeah 20 25, 25 years, years of the juice being tracked down on the white bronco the juice where is the year, where's the years gone i know right i was i was i was in two a days my first year of head coaching volleyball <laughs> so both tragedies were taking yeah. place at the same time all right very good thank you bob what, what do you got today for us today stocks are edging a little bit higher in uh, midday trading on wall street Following a couple of weeks of gains, trading is choppy as uncertainty continues over several of those ongoing trade disputes. Technology companies among the early gainers, Qualcomm, Facebook, and Netflix rose. Retailers also gaining some ground, and Amazon and Hanes brands climbed. Also, uh, Domino's is going to test pizza delivery using fully autonomous vehicles in Houston. That could be interesting if the what could pizza- possibly go wrong? Yeah, I mean, why not? Just send those pizzas out. <sighs> all right. Well, that's all coming up on Bit. 
Time for us to take a look at weather and how it's affecting agriculture for us and around the world. Scott in here with you as we uh, take a look at this. This pattern just doesn't want to quit that we're in. Uh, those periodic thunderstorm chances uh, look to continue through this week. Looking at the daytime hours today, thunderstorms are expected to be more scattered in nature. The better chances for thunderstorms will ramp up this evening and tonight, and there will be the potential for some storms to be strong to severe, mainly along and north of I-80. Those better storm chances will continue on into Tuesday between tonight and Tuesday night. Some areas could pick up one to two inches of rain, and locally heavier or higher amounts are not out of the question. Thunderstorm chances keep on going Wednesday through Friday with a better chance looking to come in the late day uh, through the overnight hours throughout the week. Uh, the, I did want to mention there is a couple flash flood watches in effect uh, for the following counties. Uh, Blaine, Chase, Custer, Frontier, Hayes, Keith, Lincoln, Logan, Loop, McPherson, Perkins, and Thomas County. Uh, they've actually expanded this a little bit into the Sand Hills for uh, Arthur, Garfield, Grant, Hooker, and Wheeler counties, too. So, And that's because of the heavy rainfall uh, last night and uh, the chances for more rain coming today. Additional heavy rain for the Midwest over the next week and a high chance for showers in the Canadian prairies are the key weather items for the commodities trade attention on Monday. The DTN Ag Weather Forecast calls for near general coverage of moderate to heavy rain over all but the northern Midwest during the next seven days. The prevailing wet conditions will continue to disrupt and delay corn and soybean planting, especially over southern and eastern areas. Additional loss of acreage to prevented planting is possible. Near to below normal temperatures, slow-growing degree day accumulations for corn. Forecast maps point to a warmer and drier period forming at the end of June into early July. This trend will be closely watched. In the northern plains, a recent trend of, high, of lighter rainfall is favorable for progress with corn and soybean planting. Near to below normal temperatures raise Concerns due to the lack of growing degree day accumulations. Cool, unsettled weather favored developing spring wheat. In the southern plains, moderate to heavy rain during the next week will be favorable for wheat harvest along with row crop development. Across the Canadian prairies, rainfall prospects are improving, notably west central and south areas. Temperatures at near to mostly below normal levels will mean slow development for the crops. As we go into South America across Brazil, the pattern continues to offer warm and dry conditions for harvest of the safarina corn crop. That's their second crop. In Europe, Russia, and Ukraine have above normal temperatures and below normal rainfall in the forecast during this week. Filling wheat and developing row crop may have uh, increasing stress due to these conditions. And uh, as we go down south in Australia, little to no follow-up rain is indicated in the forecast for this week. The 10-day time frame features a promising round of showers for Western Australia, wheat 
areas. And that's so uh, that's going to do it as we take a look. It looks like we are in this pattern. Uh, a little bit of rain around the state right now, but uh, it looks like it's something that's going to continue through much of this week. For weather at any time, you can go to krvn.com. Bryce Duskett on the Rural Radio Network, and today we're joined by Nebraska Extension Ag Policy Specialist, Dr. Brad Lubin. Dr. Lubin, as always, thank you for coming in. Good to be here. There's a lot of ag policy discussions going on, not only in D.C., but around the country, and we're going to try to unpack some of it in today's mm-hmm. segment. There's a lot to get to, though, and so maybe we'll, we'll start this out and begin with the recently passed disaster aid bill and what was included in agriculture specifically right. there. We see a bill that says there's $3 billion, just over $3 billion, for agricultural assistance. And it's for crop losses uh, in 2018 and 2019, so it specifically includes this year's events here in Nebraska as well. And it does also specifically spell out language not just for crop losses, but for losses of of, uh, crop inventory in the bin, and also specifically losses for preventive planting. So sort of every loss that we have uh, this year uh, finds its way into the bill. Lots of details to be sorted out as, as to exactly how that would be paid out. As for a timeline on that, there's certainly some question marks uh, of when that might happen. Mm-hmm. Speculation would say probably not until after a harvest. Why is that? Well, I look at it that way and say the, the traditional path for disaster assistance is that if there is disaster assistance legislation, it typically comes in after the crop year. This one's unique. It really started with the debate on 2018 losses. And by the time the, the language moved through, we had already had the, uh, the disaster events of early 2019, and so those were covered as well. So we're in the middle of the, of the crop production year. We don't specifically know what that crop loss is yet until the end of the year. We don't know what the value of that crop is until the end of the marketing year. So we're, we could be as much as 16 months or more away from uh, that final calculation of losses and potential payments. Maybe we'll come in with a formula that speeds that up, but frankly, we're several months away from uh, having an, an exact calculation here to, to finish and uh, calculations and make disaster payments. Before the disaster aid bill passed, we saw a second round of trade assistance come from the mm-hmm. Department of Agriculture. Mm-hmm. A lot of questions there as well. I think we just got questions all around today, but we know that's going to cover planted acres. What else do we know about that right. second round right now? Well, importantly, the Secretary had made pains to announce that we're offering a second round of trade assistance uh, based on some updated calculations of continued uh, losses, market losses due to the ongoing trade conflict. But we don't want to distort production decisions. So we won't specifically tie it to the commodity. Rather, the calculation appears to be, perhaps it's a commodity by commodity calculation, but then it's going to be calculated times historic production in the county, and then it's going to be weighted across the county so that every county has a single flat payment rate. That won't distort crop selection decisions, presumably, because you're going to get a single payment rate regardless of which crop you grow. But then the addition was made, or the <clears throat> notation was made, that this has to be tied to planted acreage. And arguably, there's some, there's some legal precedent that says if you're going to make trade assistance under the authority that the Secretary is using, you actually have to have a trade loss, and it's difficult to have a trade loss if you don't have the crop that suffered the loss. So there's an argument for us to why we're tying this to planted acres. Of course, if you announce that it's tied to planted acres in the middle of a season when we're trying to debate between can I get it planted, can I get it planted late, or do I declare preventive planting, uh, you're 
certainly affecting production and planting decisions at that point. So it's in the midst of a really challenging time. It adds a great deal of uncertainty that we just unfortunately don't yet have an answer to. Dr. Brad Lubin, an Extension Ag Policy Specialist, our guest today in the Nebraska Soybean Board Studio. Of course, our report's being brought to you by Nebraska Soybean Farmers and their checkoff. I'm Bryce Tuskit on the Rural Radio Network. Time for us to check in on sports. Here's Jason. Hey, thanks, Scott. Well, the College World Series continues this afternoon in Omaha. Up first in just a little bit at 1, an elimination game between Texas Tech and Arkansas. And tonight at 6, it's a winner's bracket matchup as surprising Michigan battles Florida State. Well, of course, late on Friday, and you announced that former Husker assistant and player Will Bolt will take over as head baseball coach. Bolt has been an assistant at Texas A&M since 2014, and he breaks down what kind of characteristic he'd like to instill in the program. I think the, the number one word that comes to mind is toughness. Um, just having that that grit, that tenacity, that the toughness that is required in this game um, where you're going to f- fail, you're going to get knocked down, you're going to get hit in the chin, you're probably going to get hit in the chin multiple times in one game. Being able to have that toughness to persevere. Bolt was a guest along the Husker Sports Network this past week. Kansas native Gary Woodland. He won the U.S. Open for his first major championship, finishing three strokes ahead of two-time defending champion Brooks Kepka. Former Washburn Ichabod shot a 269 yesterday for a 1,300 total to break the record for the best score ever in a U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. The Nebraska High School Rodeo season wrapped up this past weekend with the high school finals in Hastings at Adams County Fairgrounds. Rodeo athletes from across the state competed in two go-rounds and then the short go-round. The top four contestants in each of the 14 events were determined and they will go on to compete at the National High School Finals Rodeo next month in Rock Springs, Wyoming. The girls' year-end all-around award went to Mattia Eklund of Valentine with a reserve going to Riata Day of Fleming, Colorado. The boys' year-end all-around winner was Sage Miller of Springview. Now, if you'd like to see all of the results from this past weekend, we have those posted at krvn.com. Jubilant Raptors fans decked out in team gear were jamming downtown Toronto for a parade for the NBA champions. As you might expect, crowds packed the route in the square outside City Hall where the march is to eventually end this afternoon. Fans, many skipping school and work, filled the streets and subways as early as 7 this morning. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is also expected to attend, and Mayor John Tory declared today, We the North Day in Toronto, after the NBA champion slogan. And that is the check of sports. For more, you can find that anytime at krvn.com. Have a great day. I'm Jason Jorgensen. Native American activist Frank Lemire, who fought for a variety of causes and crusaded to close beer stores near a dry South Dakota Indian reservation, has died at 69. Lemire's daughter, Jennifer Lemire, said that her father died Sunday evening at an Omaha hospital. Lemire, who was a Winnebago Tribe of Nebraska member, worked for decades to close the four stores in White Clay, Nebraska, that sold millions of cans of beer near the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Lemire also spoke out against the proposed Keystone XL and Dakota Access Pipelines, and he was active in the Nebraska Democratic Party and worked his way up to vice chairman. But Judy Gashkabos with the Nebraska Commission on Indian Affairs says Lemire also had a talent for connecting with people regardless of their views. A man charged with killing a Lincoln woman has pleaded guilty to improper disposal of her remains. 
52-year-old Aubrey Trail entered the plea today before jury selection began for his murder trial. He and Bailey Boswell are accused of killing 24-year-old Sidney Loof in November 2017, dismembering her body and dumping the remains in rural Clay County. Boswell also is awaiting trial on murder and other charges. Trail has said Loof died at his hands accidentally and that he tried to get rid of her body because he didn't think law enforcement would believe him. Construction is scheduled to begin this fall to revitalize the Sun Theater in Gothenburg. Stephen Granger, the principal architect with W Design Associates, will be a part of the revitalization and talks about what to expect with the finished project of the theater's entryway. What we want to do is there will be a few bathrooms up there, and we're also going to come back in with some a larger concession stand. And one of the things when you get into an older building like this, and I'm part of the Historic Preservation Commission out of North Platte, we always want to try and incorporate the, the historical elements or icons of the existing structure, the existing building, into the new design. So I always feel like the design is complete. If someone can walk in and really can't tell anything's been done, it looks like the original structure. The local theater was originally an opera house built in 1909 and ran as a cinema house until the early 1980s by a private family. Then the Gothenburg Community Playhouse purchased the theater, continuing with live shows and movies. Over the years, additional upgrades have been made, including new seating, digital projection, added lighting for stage production, as well as a new sound system. Organizers have canceled this year's annual Symphony in the Flint Hills performances because storms did extensive damage to the tents and other equipment for the event in Kansas. The group that planned the performance doesn't plan to offer refunds for the tickets that sold for between $50 and $95. Reporting on the Rural Radio Network, I'm Dave Schroeder. Kansas State University looks at ways to beat the heat with wheat. I'm Shaylee Peters with you now on the Rural Radio Network, and we visit today with Krishna Jagadish. He is an associate professor of agronomy with K-State University. And Krishna, you guys have a project going on down near Manhattan, near campus. You've got a couple of tents set up looking at different weed varieties, heat resistance. I'm going to let you go into the details. Give us some background on this project you have going. Sure. Uh, before I actually jump in responding to that question, I have to uh, probably give you a little bit of a background. Um, so wheat basically is an extremely important food crop for Kansas as well as the Great Plains and even globally if you think of it that way. But if you look at Kansas and the Great Plains, um, some of the productivity levels are much lower, although we have large areas of wheat that is being grown. So one of the reasons why we see such lower productivity is because of the extreme temperatures that wheat uh, normally encounters in these regions during the grain filling period. So based on that, we, some of the other analysis have shown that although we have high temperatures, it is the warmer nighttime temperatures which is starting to play a major role in reducing the yield and quality. So that was a basic uh, background on uh, uh, on our effort to actually address this. So last year we actually set up a similar but a much smaller infrastructure on the field and we actually put some of the popular cultivars that are grown in Kansas including Everest, Joe and a few others as by Monument and some of these varieties and we were able to see that if you increase your nighttime temperatures by uh, let's say four degrees centigrade um, uh, during the night 
it would lead to a, on an average 20% reduction in yield. So you're looking at every 5% reduction in yield if your nighttime temperatures go up by one degree centigrade. So that basically brought us to a point of this question. So, okay, we see this damage happening. So how do you actually address this? And that actually led to this much bigger project where you see uh, large size tents which are built on the field. Uh, so we are trying to address this uh, problem. That's, that's the background of it. So what have you been seeing in the tent so far? Uh, I mean, outside of it, 2019 has not been as warm. We've had some exceptional weather for sure. But what are you seeing in the tent? Right. Uh, so, yeah, I agree that the temperatures are not quite what it has been over the last uh, couple of years, I would say, during this period. But it is the same uh, sort of an, um condition that we are trying to address here. So you have a lot of variability in on an annual basis with respect to temperature, particularly during the grain filling in wheat. So we are trying to find a way of equipping the wheat in such a way that if the weather patterns become as variable as they are now across years, they are still able to stand to these changes in uh, temperature. So with this new infrastructure, what we have been able to do is each of these tents or the field tents actually houses 320 different cultivars in each of them. So this is pretty much the representation of the entire hard red winter wheat of the U.S. So we have assembled all these and then put them together under the same roof where you increase the warm nighttime temperatures and try to capture the responses. So we have six of these tents, three of them for ambient conditions where you would see it in a normal field condition so they would grow well, yield well, and have the same quality that you're expecting. But the other three are basically the warm nighttime temperature replicate tents where the same set of 320 cultivars are exposed to four degrees centigrade higher temperature during the nighttime specifically. So um, using this, uh, by the end of the project, we would actually take the yield and also take some of the grains and look at the grain and the protein content and see if the temperature starts to warm into the future the way they have been doing over the last two decades. We want to capture if there are lines that can actually sustain these temperatures and help us develop our wheat varieties in the future, which are more stable to such uh, climatic variability. So then, Krishna, how do you monitor the temperature in the tents and then adjust them as needed based on the results that you're getting? So it's a very good question. So we have uh, come up with an interesting uh, um, partnership with the computer science department here at K-State where the technology that we're using is a cyber physical system where it runs off a, off a small Raspberry Pi, which is like a credit card-sized computer, you would want to call it. So, as I mentioned, there are these three normal conditions of the tents which are not stressed. So, there are multiple sensors in each of these tents which averages the temperature across the entire tents and pass that image over to a single Raspberry Pi or a single computer which is there inside each of these tents. And that information is wirelessly transferred to a corresponding heated tent where each triggers the heating system to go on uh, until a point where it is uh, reaching four degrees centigrade higher. So let's say you have temperatures at 16 and you reach 20 degrees at the night, then the heaters shut themselves off. And when the temperature difference starts to go down, then it comes back again. So this goes on throughout the entire night to make sure that 
the plants are exposed constantly at least roughly about four degrees centigrade compared to the outside and the and the stress period starts immediately or close to the end of flowering so the stress is imposed right through the entire grain filling period where we do take some of the measurements on samples to see how the grain is developing uh, what is going to be the impact on uh, its quality towards the end all right. Thank you so much for your time. It's Krishna Jagadish, Associate Professor of Agronomy with Kansas State University, discussing the tents they have set up to help measure the impact of high nighttime temperatures on the wheat crop. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. Time for us to take a look at uh, the financial markets and see what's going on. What went on in the overnight uh, was... Okay, nothing too exciting, pretty mixed. The Japanese Nikkei was uh, down, or was up, I'm sorry, seven points. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong was up 109 points, and the FTSE in London was up 11. The only uh, one of the overseas that were down was Germany's DAX index, which was down 10.57. Here, green across the board at the stock exchanges here in the United States, the Dow Jones up 60 points. The NASDAQ was also up 64 as tech stocks doing okay. And the S&P is up 8. And uh, we turn it over to Bob Rogan for more. Stocks are higher in afternoon trading on Wall Street as the market builds on a couple weeks of gains. Technology and Wall Street as the uh, technology and communications companies rather rose more than the other sectors. Qualcomm and Facebook both rose. Several companies were making big moves on deal news. Bidfair USA is taking auction house Sotheby's private in a deal valued at $3.7 billion. In uh, elsewhere, uh, Pfizer is buying the cancer treatment company Array Biopharma in a deal worth $11.4 billion. Array has a combination therapy for uh, a particular kind of cancer along with a pipeline of targeted cancer medicines in development and a portfolio of other medicines that are expected to generate significant royalties over time. Elon Musk says he is deleting his Twitter account 10 months after his use of the social media site landed him in trouble with U.S. regulators. The Tesla CEO changed his Twitter display name to daddy.com on Father's Day. Musk got in trouble with regulators for tweets about taking the company private and saying he had secured funding to do so with no evidence to back that up. Musk and Tesla each paid $20 million in fines to settle with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Also, Domino's plans to test pizza delivery using fully autonomous vehicles in Houston. That brings up a whole lot of questions, but meanwhile, the world's largest pizza company is teaming up with Neuro a Silicon Valley startup that makes unmanned delivery vehicles. Nero is also partners with Kroger Company. It's been delivering groceries autonomously in, in, uh, autonomously in Arizona and Houston since late last year. So I'm wondering what happens if they deliver the wrong kind of pizza. Mm. Uh, does it get sent back? Does you know? It, it just brings up a whole lot of questions. Well, does the thirty-minute rule comes in come into effect? Then do they get the pizza free? How does that work? There's I, so many things, Bob. I, I just, don't know. I uh, so many questions I to answer and so little time to answer them. And so, 
there's a whole array of things that are coming our way. They're not here yet, but they're they're moving in this direction. So we'll just have to stay tuned. I guess we'll see what happens. Also, locally, Tyson Foods down about three percentage points right now on the heels of their announcement to be using some plant-based food, plant-based meat. We'll see how that all comes out, too. H2A program for the dairy industry would be a good thing. Good afternoon. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Paul Bleberg is Vice President of Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. As we talk about the work done last week to include H2A for those in the dairy industry. Sure. So the H-2A program is an already existing agricultural visa program. Uh, The reason the dairy industry cannot use the program is because it's a seasonal-only program. It allows only for seasonal workers to to participate and receive visas under the program, and thus the dairy industry has never been able to access the program. And has in that uh, that issue has really exacerbated what was already a challenge in the dairy industry, and I think I would characterize it as I did in a conversation last week is really a full blown labor crisis at this point. You know, fully half of roughly half of the workforce on American dairy farms is foreign born, and this is really a critical issue for us. Availability of labor supply is a major major issue, and so we are constantly in the dairy industry looking for any path forward we can find on immigration reform, and and that path involves two things in, in, an, in an ideal situation. We, we're looking to see, number one, can we find a pathway to legal status uh, for all the current workers that are already here? Is some kind of legislation passed in the law that would give all current agricultural workers a pathway to legal status? That's something we're very much supportive of and have always pushed for. The second piece of that is future workers, making sure that we have a guest worker program that works for dairy, that meets our needs. And, you know, right now, as I said a minute ago, the H-2A program just does not do that because it only allows um, seasonal workers to participate. So that's sort of the backdrop to our broader efforts, and we're always engaged in different legislative conversations on how we can move this ball forward. Uh, we had a good opportunity that last week, however. The, uh, the House Appropriations Committee in the House of Representatives, which deals with funding for the federal government was working on its bill to fund the Department of Homeland Security and its operations for the upcoming fiscal year, which begins on October 1st of this year. And uh, in the process of working on that bill, the committee added an amendment that was sponsored by Congressman Henry Cuellar from Texas on the Democratic side and Congressman Dan Newhouse from Washington State on the Republican side. And it was a very simple amendment that would modify the H-2A program so that year-round ag workers could participate. It's not a permanent fix because obviously it would only be in in effect for that 2020 uh, year that the bill would apply to, but it's a foot in the door. And so we were very supportive of the House committee adding that amendment in. You know, our understanding is that in the next couple of months, the House will vote on this legislation more broadly on the House floor. And then later in the year, the House and Senate and the White House will reach hopefully a broader budget agreement as to how much money they're going to spend on the on the full federal government for the fiscal year. And at that time, we'll obviously be working to make sure that this amendment stays in the final version of that budget agreement. Because, you know, the House is doing their bill right now, the Senate will work on their own bill, and those two bills will eventually have to be combined into a final bill that the president will consider for signature. So, you know, this was the first step, getting it into the bill last week in the House. But we will uh, be working hard with the the amendment sponsors and other interested members of Congress uh, in the House and Senate to kind of keep this language in the final version of the bill later in the year. 
And it's good to know work will continue in the push to help those in the dairy industry fill these positions that, unfortunately for many, go unfilled. That, that's right. And I think uh, it's just worth underscoring again, you know, this is a foothold on the door. This is an initial step. We still are very much pushing for a broader, more you know, comprehensive, permanent fix to this issue. But and any progress we can make is critical. And that's why we're so appreciative of Congressman Cuellar and Congressman Newhouse. For- Comments with Paul Bleberg. I'm Susan Littlefield. Liberal Radio Network. Clay Patton on the Rural Radio Network as we take a look here at the settling lifestyle or grain markets. We talk with John Payne, senior marketing analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago, publisher of the newsletter this week in grain. John, as we take a look here at the close, good numbers here for corn and soybeans, a little bit shaky on the wheat towards the close. Yeah, wheat's got a little bit of a problem in my opinion here. You look at, at the the price differences globally. Um, U.S. is offering two forty. 238 on my numbers into the close this morning, uh, $238 a metric ton versus the Russian offers at 196 So, I mean, you're almost a dollar higher uh, here than in Russia. So, I, I without a problem in that crop, and, and there is some issues, I, I just don't know if, if the wheat's going to be able to perform here, which could be a little bit of a drag on the July corn contract as well. So, um, if, if you're looking at ratings of, as far as bearish goes, I think the, the Chicago would be the first, and then the KC, and then, uh, and then corn. But... Um, uh, maybe coming after a pop from tonight's crop progress report first. And speaking of crop progress, what what are the areas? What are the numbers we need to shoot for? What are traders watching? Well, I, you know, we don't have a whole lot of new numbers for corn because we don't report plantings this late. I mean, typically we're in the ground by now, so uh, we, I don't have any data about where we've been. So I, I think the market will look for us to to show some progress, possibly of not, above ninety percent. Um, although I don't know how that would be possible, just given the the rains and the, and the moisture that we've had really in the last week and a half this way. Uh, Indiana, Ohio will continue to be delayed. It's really going to be required for you folks to carry the country this year, and I'm speaking specifically to Nebraska corn farmers. Um, you're probably in the best spot. I know it's turning wet your way, but um, you know Western Iowa, and I know there's problems everywhere, but Western Iowa, Nebraska seem to be the areas that, that I'm getting the least amount of calls about. North of you up towards uh, Sioux Falls, Sioux City, uh, they're going to have problems, and then all the way over across on the I-90 drive. Uh, really, to Chicago, you're going to run into problems, uh, specifically in southern Wisconsin, northern Illinois, northern Indiana, Michigan. I don't think Michigan's, you know, was even 40% planted in the last year's crop. And these are all fringe acres that I'm talking about. But when they add up, when you add up the Missouri's, the Wisconsin's, the um, the Michigan, you know, areas, even something like northern Kentucky. I mean, there, there could be, uh, you know, some some you know millions and millions of acres of lost lost planted acres. So. Um, it's going to be a real wild couple of weeks. I would imagine uh, between the report we're going to get tonight, the report we're going to get next Monday, and then the crop progress or planning report that will come out the following Friday, uh, we have three major opportunities for the, for the trend to change. And if they don't, I think then it maybe takes off into July. Again, we've been talking with John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. If you would like to read that newsletter and go more in-depth to what John talks about here on air, visit their website. That's DanielsAgMarketing.com. Again, DanielsAgMarketing.com on the Rural Radio Network.